Welcome back to Tequila She Wrote, a podcast about true crime and cocktails. I'm Sloan, your bartender for today. And I'm Trish, your crime tender. And today we're going to bring you the story of Michael Peterson. Peterson. Off the top of my head, it doesn't ring any bells, but we'll get into it and we'll all figure it out together. It's the staircase murders, pretty much. Right. And I... I know that right before COVID and quarantine and all of that, there was a big group of us at our work, our mutual workplace, that we kind of bonded over true crime together. And it was as the Netflix documentary came out about this. I watched maybe the first and a half episode before I lost interest. <laughs> um, but I just, I remember one of our managers talking about it a lot and now Hulu is releasing a documentary about it as well, so there is a lot of renewed interest about this. But before we get into everything else, we just really wanted to address the state of our country right now. Uh, If you are not aware, which most of you are, we do know, but it's heavy on my heart, it's heavy on Trisha's heart, so we want to talk about it. But if you don't know what we're referring to, the United States Supreme Court recently overturned Roe versus Wade. And in my opinion and how I feel, and if you want to rebuttal this, feel free to, but this is all like a learning process as far as I'm concerned, where we can learn from the other side, the other side can learn from us. But I feel like as a woman, my rights were just stripped away from me. Yes. And especially as a woman with PCOS living in the South, I especially feel burdened by all of this. The news released on Friday that it was officially overturned and I spent all day Friday until work and all day Saturday until work just laying in the living room on the mattress on the floor in the dark. No TV know nothing and if you know me that's a big deal like I always have to have sound going like I have to have some sort of stimulation but I was so overstimulated from what was going inside going on inside my head and my mind and my heart and it just it really sucks you know like it is 2022 and we just got taken back 50 50 years years? yeah it's like ridiculous i literally spent the day that got announced like i had to work that day so i spent like all the time before work just like on tiktok on facebook everything like that and just responding to people that either had my views or didn't have my views and that and i I mean, I haven't truly lost them, but I have more than likely lost, like, at least a couple of friends that I've had for years over this whole situation. I just, for me, growing up, I always thought that I was pro-life because, like I've said, I am born and raised Southern. I was Southern Baptist uh, on one side of my family and just Baptist on the other side and on that side, I had further family up that was Catholic, but my grandmother left the Catholic church. We've talked about this before. All of this to say, growing up, I always thought that I was pro-life because I would never have gotten an abortion for me. But I always knew 
that there were circumstances for other women that, you know, maybe they couldn't have children. And then I found out later on that I have a very toxic like uterus. It's just not a good idea. But my point being here, even as a kid, I knew that at that point, if I were to get pregnant and I was going to have that child, I would have that child sort of situation. But if another woman had to make the decision for her health, whether it be mental or physical health, if she had to make the decision to abort her own child, then that is on her. That is on her own conscience. That is on her own heart. Whatever you want to believe if you're on that side of the fight. What pro-choice means is exactly that. Yes. Pro-choice means that you believe every woman has the right to make the choice for herself. It does not mean that you yourself believe that you would have an abortion. It means it that doesn't you mean believe. that you've like people villainize like people that are pro-choice like oh you just want all the killing of these unborn children. No, no. I'm saying that I feel like every woman should have a choice. Depending on the situation, depends on what my choice itself would be. Yes. Do I believe as that it should be a form of birth control? No. Absolutely not. It should not be relied on regularly. But if but, something happens, yes. if there are mishaps, if there are, you know, like my husband and I are careful and we know that I am supposedly infertile, but it's not 100%. So if I were to get pregnant and I have the toxic uterus and that could be considered an ectopic preg pregnancy. In some states, that is still considered abortion. Yeah. Well, it's if not I even miscarried. That. It's not even that. I have a friend that is a, she's an OB nurse. She recently just had a miscarriage. But you want to know how it's classified in medical documents? An abortion. Medical documents don't recognize miscarriage. They classify it as birth an abortion or abortion those are the two options there and the fact that we live in alabama which has this trigger law that basically says you can't have any legal abortions i think they do have like the you know unless it's detrimental to the mother's health but there's no clear guidelines as to what you consider detrimental how dead or dying does that mother have to be for you to allow an abortion? And also, we live in a state that if I went out of state to have a safe, legal abortion, if I came back and someone reported me, I would be charged with a felony. And suffering it, up to life in jail. Right. So on that note, ladies, be very careful be careful with your phone. Be careful with the information Delete that you give out. Delete any period trackers you may have. And that is including your Apple Health. If you're, if you're tracking your cycle through Apple Health, do not use it as of right now until we have further information. And I'm not saying this to sound scary because I know it sounds scary whenever yeah. you first hear it. I was petrified. But the truth behind all of this is, is that we know that apps share to third party and for like third parties all the time. Mm -hmm. And so until we know if that information is protected by those apps, 
it is safer for us to just not use them. Yes. So, we clearly have a lot of feelings on this. We didn't, we also know that, like, you know, you listen to podcasts and you use your social media and you use your TV and all that kind of stuff. You use it to get away. Yeah. But this is a very important thing that's happening right now. And it's very important to remember that this is a mid-election year. So while it feels like we are hopeless and we have very little chance of turning this around. You have people that you can vote into office that can make a difference. It doesn't even have to be Republican or Democrat. If you have a write-in person, we always feel like write-ins don't stand a chance because there's not enough people voting for them. If you spread it around, you can get enough people backing them. All it takes is the majority. It takes the majority. And if the majority is unhappy with the Republican and the Democrat parties, then we need something else to turn to. I don't know if that's the answer right here, right now. I'm not saying that, but I'm just saying that for majority of my life, I've felt like my single vote does not matter. I've still voted, but there are so many people out there that are being vocal about how unhappy they are. And if we actually put that action in at the polls, we can see a difference yes. in our Congress, in our president, in our Supreme Court, and things like that. I personally think that if we can't vote the Supreme Court out right now, then we need to add more justices. Because the Supreme Court as it is does not represent America as a whole. No. It's way more conservative than what we are as a population. And that's why we're having a lot of these things being overturned. So the best thing that we can all do is vote. Spread the word. Call your representatives. There are a ton of resources on Instagram and TikTok that have word for word what you can say whenever you call them to express how pleased or how displeased you are with them. So there is a lot that we can do and we have a fairly short amount of time to do this. Like, honestly, the time has already passed. So that is our serious talk for this episode. It's our little Ted talk for the day. I was about to say, I said serious talk and we're about to talk about true crime. So like, our little TED talk, our little rant on what is currently going on. And I guess we'll leave it at that and we will kick you off to Michael Peterson, which I'm very interested to tell you all about and then to hear your opinions on what you personally think because I was telling Sloan, this is one that literally after researching, I'm like, I literally don't know how I feel. I can argue both sides of this case and still be like, he's guilty, but he's also maybe not guilty. (laughs) Like, what? I'm already like that with most cases, so I'm not. Yeah. But we'll see. We'll kick you off. I'm excited to see after everything what you all think. And yeah.
welcome back to another bartending round with Sloan. Today we are going to make a drink that is another drink that is inspired by Alyssa in the kitchen on TikTok. <laughs> she has been using just like smashed fruits and pressed citruses with Mike's hot honey for a while. And that's why I say that I want to attribute this to her because it's literally, I'm, I'm going to call it a peach smash, but I took half of a peach, a handful of blueberries, and I smashed that together and then I strained it. To that, I added one shot of peach Smirnoff vodka and some Mike's hot honey. Shook that with ice, poured it into a glass that I ran with some more tahini and it's so good. It's sweet with a little kick to it, so it's not overly sweet, which is something that I've been having not like problems with, but like that's that's something that I find with a lot of summer drinks is that they're too sweet for me. I like the sour or the spicy more than I do sweet. Yeah. If I want sweet, I want dessert drinks. So if I'm ordering like fruit drinks, I want a little bit something more than sweet to it. So for me, adding this Mike's Hot Honey or tahine to it is the perfect trick to balance it out. So that is what I made for you today. A little peach smash. Just peach, blueberry, peach vodka, a little honey if you don't want it spicy. Or you could even use simple syrup. Shake it together, pour it, and enjoy. You could also blend it together. This would make a great, like, if I had a little personal blend jet, which I did try to buy one from Aldi and it was, it didn't work. But if I had like a little mini blend jet, it would be cool to take a bag of frozen peaches and blueberries to the beach with us. And you could just like make individual froze peach smashes sort of situation. So we have a beach trip coming up. I might go invest in a little blend jet. We might take this with us. But if you try this, let us know what you think. Hope you enjoy it and enjoy the episode. All right, welcome back to another case with your crime tender, Trish. And like we said in the intro, we are going to be talking about Michael Peterson. If this name does not ring a bell to you, just know that this is a case that, like Sloan kind of said in the intro, became kind of famous pre-quarantine and then has since become renewed, like, interest in it since the Hulu documentary slash, like, reenactment has come out. So, this is also kind of known as, like, the staircase murder. And our case begins December 9th, 2001. I hate when things start in my birthday month. I already have to wait a whole fucking year for everything, but let's just <laughs> throw some crime in there. So our case begins December 9th, 2001. Michael Peterson called 911 and reported he had found his wife unconscious at the bottom of the stairs. He thought she must have fallen down the stairs in their Forest Hills neighborhood home in Durham, North Carolina, mm -hmm. which if you know the area is kind of a richer area. I have an Instagram friend that lives there. Yeah. It's not like 
super, super rich, but it is definitely a more, like, prominent area, I would say. So, this phone call to 911 led to a case of deciding if Kathleen Peterson's death was accidental or murder. Before we get into the details of this trial, let's go, let's get to know a little bit about Michael. He was born in Nashville, Tennessee, which I fucking love Nashville. Never been. I feel like that is my second home. I spent most of my childhood going back and forth between like there and where I grew up because I have half siblings that that's where their mother resided. So I was there almost every summer, every winter. I was at least there like a good month or two out of the year. I'm jealous. Love it. I will go. I will show you around. They have a Taco Bell bar there. Do they? Mm Mm-hmm. How don't I know about this? It's newer. It has to be on second or Broadway. I don't know, but I've it seen it on be. TikTok, so it's real. It has to be on second or Broadway. Like, because I've is... seen it on TikTok, it is fact. <laughs> All right. And so... now y'all know how I get convinced into conspiracy theories. <laughs> so Michael was born in Nashville, Tennessee to parents. Eugene and Eleanor Peterson. He graduated from Duke University with a bachelor's in political science. While at Duke, he was president of Sigma Nu fraternity and editor of the Chronicle, which was a daily student newspaper from 1964 to 1965. Daily is just too often. And this 24-7 shit that we have now is way too often. So after graduating, he attended classes at the law school of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Once he graduated, he took a civilian job with the U.S. Department of Defense, researching arguments supporting increasing military involvement in Vietnam. The same year, he married Patricia Sue. She was an elementary school teacher on the Rhine Main Air Base in Grofhausen, I'm guessing is how it's said, West Germany. They had two children, Clayton and Todd. In 1968, Michael was commissioned in the U.S. Marine Corps and served in the Vietnam War. Which, whether you are one of those people that believe it's a real war or not, it to me, I have a family member that did serve in it. He was never the same. I didn't know him prior to it. I was not even a thought in my parents' eye at the time. <laughs> but, like, my parents can literally tell you he went to this war. He came back. He was not the same. Yeah. Which is how it is for most of the people that went to the Vietnam War. I find it kind of ironic that he helped kind of look into, like, increasing troops over there. And then he suddenly 
went over there. In 1971, he received an honorable discharge with the rank of captain after a car accident left him with a permanent disability. Pearson, later in a campaign to become mayor, would claim he had been awarded a silver star, a bronze star, with valor and two purple hearts. He had all the medals, but couldn't produce documentation for them. Which, if you know anything military-based, is just a huge Mm no-no. You don't fucking lose that documentation. There's no way. So, Michael and Patricia lived in Germany for some time. They befriended Elizabeth and George Ratliff and their two girls, Martha and Margaret. When George died, the families became even closer, and when Elizabeth died in 1985, Michael gained custody of the two girls. In 1987, Michael and Patricia divorced. Clayton and Todd stayed with Patricia, and Martha and Margaret stayed with Michael, who moved to Durham, North Carolina, and the boys would later join Michael. In 1989, Michael moved in with Kathleen Atwater, a successful Nortel business exec. I don't know if I said that name right, but... Sounds good to me. Just know she was a... She was in this big, like, business company. Mm-hmm. In 1997, Michael and Kathleen married, and her daughter, Caitlin, joined their extended family. According to friends and family, Michael and Kathleen had a great marriage. They were very happy and described as being totally compatible with each other. Michael went on to write three books about his experiences during the Vietnam conflict and helped co-write some books as well. He also worked as a newspaper columnist for the Durham Herald Sun. His articles became known for their criticism of police and the Durham County District Attorney, James Harden Jr., which that name becomes a little... um, Needed to know here very soon. So now back to the night of December 9th, 2001. Michael called 911 to report his wife had most likely fallen down the stairs. During the initial call, Michael and Michael said Kathleen was still breathing. He called back after his call was disconnected and said she had stopped breathing. So I want there's I think we mentioned it either at the start of like this or in the intro that there's a Hulu and a Netflix documentary. I watched a majority of the Netflix one and they do play some of the 911 call but it based off like what I found it sounds like they played the second part or they spliced the two calls together I don't know but he does sound distressed 
But in, like, the one that I heard, he says, like, she's not breathing. Which makes me feel like maybe they were spliced together. So, like I said, during the initial call, Michael said Kathleen was still breathing. He called back after the call was disconnected and said she had stopped breathing. When authorities arrived, they found Kathleen's body where Michael had described it to be and found that it was surrounded by a large pool of blood. Michael said they had watched a movie together, which in the documentary he says was what he thinks was American Sweethearts. Then around 11, they went and sat by the pool for several hours drinking wine, which he says they were drinking wine during the movie also. He said they probably drank about two bottles that night. So Kathleen then decided that she was going to go to bed before him, and hours later is when he discovered her at the bottom of the stairs. He would later claim he was outside by the pool and had come in at 2.40 a.m. to find Kathleen. Remember, she around 11 is when they went out, and then he said just a couple hours later is when she decided to go to bed. Which, was he looking at, like, a watch or anything? We don't know, but to him it felt like some time had passed. And they're saying at 2.40 is when he made the call. Or at least discovered her. So, he said it was likely she had fallen after drinking and then taking a Valium. Now, toxicology reports showed Kathleen's BAC was 0.07. Her alcohol in urine was point, like 0.11. And she had taken a 5 and 15 milligram of Valium. So, basically 20 milligrams of Valium. And... Basically, at 0.08, you're considered intoxicated, which she was at 0.07, so just under intoxicated, and you're considered very intoxicated at 0.08 to 0.40. So, I would assume at point... Almost dropped my drink. That was very sad. At point oh seven, I would can I would think that you would Sirs. He's having a bad day today. It's been about a week since his back hurt, so he's due for a bad day. Yeah. <clears throat> but I would think that point oh seven you would um think some you would basically classify that person as intoxicated. One would hope, but but you never know. <laughs> it's also not like she got stopped somewhere. She was at her home, so they had to go off of you know what the body had metabolized by the time she had passed. Yeah. 
So in the autopsy report, it stated she received a multitude of injuries. Those include a fracture of the superior cornu. It was a lot of medical terms, and then I looked it up to try to dumb it down. But I was like, I'll just, I'll try to, like, include it. Everything that I know that's medical is from Grey's Anatomy. So. I, I did nursing for a little bit, so I do know, like, some anatomy stuff. But, yeah. So, it was basically, she had a fracture to the left thyroid cartilage. So, like. Like, what is the left? So, like, it'd be like, I'm showing slow. It'd be like right here. It's on like the side of the like neck. Like, if you ear. were, like, if you were being <clears throat> choked yeah. or anything like that. So, she had like an injury there, which causes throat pain. So, like I said, as if you were being choked or, you know, someone's trying to damage your airway. She also had seven lacerations to the top and back of her head. But, depending on how far up she was on the stairs, if she passed out or whatnot, when you're falling, you're obviously going to hit some stairs. So, it could have been that. Uh, what else? There, But, you know, the prosecution that, and police said these are consistent with blows from a blunt object. And the report also said she died from blood loss 90 minutes to two hours after sustaining these injuries. So again, I bring up the timeline. He says around 11. They went out to the pool, drank some more wine, and then maybe an hour or so later, she decided she was going to go to bed. And then at 2.40 is when he is claiming he found her. Which, I mean, I guess would fall into like the hour or so. But, it's all very sketchy. So, December 20th, 2001, Michael Peterson was indicted for Kathleen's murder. He surrendered himself to police and was taken into custody. Peterson made a public statement saying, Kathleen was my life. I've whispered her name in my heart a thousand times. She is there and I can't stop crying. I would never have done anything to hurt her. If you watch the Netflix documentary, you can see this like, clip like basically one on one and there's parts of it that sounds sincere and then there's parts that you're like this was fucking written for you to say so like I said as like as I was researching this case I, I went back and forth and back and forth I'm like I I don't know I don't know I don't know what happened I can argue both sides, but it's just, it's so... It's almost reminiscent of, like, the glorious Setterfield case. Like, which, if you remember, we covered the Murdoch murders quite a bit back a few months ago. Yeah. And Gloria Setterfield was... 
their nanny slash housekeeper. Yeah. And she passed away slash was murdered after she fell slash was pushed down the stairs. Yeah. So to me, this is very... It's just, it's like, there's so many, like, you could spiral down so many rabbit holes with this thing. And I'm going to get into some of the theories. And it's just like, you sit there and go, I mean, maybe. And then you're like, but no. <laughs> right. Just tell me when to put my tinfoil hat on. <laughs> I'll let you know. All right. So both Kathleen's daughter, Caitlin, and her sister, Candace at first supported Michael's innocence along with his children, although Candace responded after learning Michael was bisexual and Caitlin also kind of went away from his innocence after she read the, like, autopsy report. So, January 14, 2002, the staircase began filming. So, like, this documentary that's now on Netflix was literally, like, there when police and every, and, like, the different jury, like, not juries, but the, like, different sides of the case were researching and trying to figure out, like, what angle they were going to spin. They were there from the get They were there. So, like, it's, it's interesting. I highly suggest watching it because it's interesting because you get to see his side trying to explain everything and trying to like I don't like I'm trying to think of the word but trying to like defend him yeah like trying to spin their like story and how they're gonna do all this to like match what is like clear evidence and then you also have the prosecution being like no this is this is what happened and then trying to spin like that to match like their stuff with what is like you cannot like, say, no, this is what happened. Like, yeah. you can't dispute what is in stone. So, it's it's just, it's interesting because, like I said, because it was basically filmed, when this was all still going on, you get to see both sides, and then you get to see pre-trial stuff, and then you get to see trial stuff, and all that. It's biased, but unbiased. Yeah. Like, you can definitely tell they tried to make it seem, like, seem slash, they tried to make it from his viewpoint, but also they knew that they had to include the prosecution side. And it's just, it's interesting, and like I said, I feel like after watching that, I can go back and forth between who I want to believe. Yeah. So, like I said, in February 2002 is when the staircase began filming. It's directed by French filmmaker Jean-Xavier de Lestrade. Don't know if I said any of that correctly, but I'm going to say I did. (laughs) John sounded great. It's a documentary series that followed the case from the perspective of Michael, his family, and his defense team led by David Rudolph. Like I said, you still do get some of the prosecution side, so it's not like a completely one-sided thing. Um, 
So it was originally released on a French network, but later moved to Netflix. And the most recent episodes were ordered and released in 2018. So right before quarantine. And that's also kind of when this started getting more, like, I feel like more recent traction. Because at the time of the case, there's many articles in that that prove that it was a high-profile case. But I I didn't look up to see what else may have been going on at that time as to why, like, I don't remember it from that time. During the trial, a forensic expert named Henry Lee, hired by the defense, testified that the blood spatter evidence was consistent with an accidental fall down the stairs while police investigators said the the injuries were inconsistent with such an accident. So it's kind of like a he he said, she said sort of thing. Michael was the only one at the residence at the time of the murder or accidental death, so he was the prime suspect. He was charged with the murder and pled not guilty. Medical examiner Deborah Radish concluded Kathleen had died from the seven lacerations to her scalp. According to Deborah, these were the result of repeated blows from a light yet rigid weapon. So, like I said, the, like, prosecution basically said that the weapon that caused these seven lacerations was a light yet rigid weapon. The defense, however, disputed this theory, stating that lacerations were not consistent with blows of any sort. There was lack of underlying injury such as skull fractures or bruising, swelling, and hemorrhaging of the brain. As the trial drew, media like attention grew as details of Michael's private life emerged, which was thanks to the prosecution team, which included James Harden Jr., So, this, the prosecution team attacked his credibility, focusing on the alleged misreporting of his military service and what they described as his gay life he kept secret. His gay life was the fact that he was bisexual. <laughs> Which I know hits, hits a hard note in this room. Yep. Wrong <laughs> like, audience. I'm like, you want you want to go there? You want to go there. So, they went on to allege that Michael and Kathleen's marriage was not happy. They suggested that Kathleen had discovered his gay life and wanted a divorce. This was their grounds and motive for the alleged murder of Kathleen, who had a 1.5 million life insurance policy out on her. Mm. Red flag. <laughs> yeah. It's a red flag, but also it's not 
unlikely because he was a successful author in that. So, like, he had money. Red flag. Yeah. So, Michael's defense team argued that Kathleen knew and accepted his bisexuality. They said that the marriage was happy, which was supported by Michael's kids and friends and associates. Which he goes on to say in the documentary that, because, like, it's brought up in court and everything. He was like, no, she knew. She knew I was having, like, marital affairs with men. He claims he never cheated on her with a woman. He just cheated on her with men. That's still cheating, sir. It is, but it's also like, are you more upset the fact that it was a man or a woman? Because if I don't clear it, it's cheating, period. Yeah. But I know there are people that are going to be like, oh, well, I mean, it wasn't. And it's like, he, he says it was never a woman. It was a man. And he also claims that she knew. So, I mean, either they had an open marriage or he just thinks they had an open marriage. Yeah. So, the prosecution said the alleged murder weapon was a custom-made fireplace poker called a blowpoke. And that this had apparently been gifted to them from Kathleen's sister, Candace but was missing from the house at the time of the investigation. But later during the trial, the defense team produced the blowpoke, stating it was overlooked by police in the garage. Forensic tests revealed the poker had been untouched and unmoved for some time that was long enough to have not have been used during the murder. So, again, it's another thing you have to look at and be like, I mean, you can't, you can't really overlook forensic evidence too much, but also there's loopholes. There's loopholes to everything. Everything. So, a juror later said the jury had dismissed the idea of the blowpoke being used as the murder weapon. So, the next thing I'm going to bring up that was kind of used during this case was, we all remember Elizabeth Rat, Rat, yeah, Ratcliffe, I think is how the name is said, the, the like family from Germany. Mm-hmm. So, we all remember how she just like kind of mysteriously died. <laughs> So, this was brought up because she was a friend of Michael and his first wife, and she mysteriously died from a fall down the stairs as well. Well, this death was investigated by German police and U.S. military police, and Elizabeth was said to have died from internal cerebral hemorrhage along with a blood coagulation disorder. She had been suffering several, like, severe 
persistent headaches for like a week prior to her death. Which I feel like anybody that suffers from migraines and that, this is usually the case anyway. So, if you're telling me that, like, Sloan gets migraines. I do. You're telling me that if Sloan fell down <laughs> a flight of steps, she's just gonna, you're gonna say, Ah, oh, she suffered from these fucking massive headaches. That's what did it. No. <laughs> no. If I were to fall down a massive, a massive set of steps, it would be one... Oh, it was Sloane. She was a klutz. <laughs> Two. You know she had those twitches, right? <laughs> like, she would just randomly go, Bruh! It's like Tourette's, Three. but I don't have Tourette's. Three. Oh, goddamn, the boys drug her down. <laughs> that has actually happened before. They drug me down steps. <laughs> it was, like, right after I got Kodak, so he was not <laughs> acclimated to us yet. And the problem was my apartment complex, the light was out at night, so I didn't see the steps, so they pulled me down, I missed the step, it was a whole fucking thing, it is what it is. I fucked up my knees that night. (laughs) But yeah, it's just, I find it so funny, they're they're like, oh yeah, she had these massive headaches, you know, that just contributed to it. Not Um, necessarily. Okay. So what's strange is that Michael and his wife had gone over for dinner, like, the night the night that she, like, had died. Michael had stayed to help put the children... It's <laughs> <laughs> oh. so like, oops. <laughs> My phone connects to my iPad, so it's gonna go. It's fine. It's fine. I sent a group chat of an emoji, not an emoji, of a, of a meme, and it says, hey guys, does anyone know what the fuck? Point blank. Like, that was it. No, none of us know what the fuck. No. But I just opened Facebook to clear my notifications, and that was the first thing. <laughs> Yeah, no one knows what the fuck is going None on. None of okay. us know what the fuck. <laughs> <sighs> oh, where was I at? <laughs> so, yeah. So, like I said, the, like, hemorrhage, hemorrhage and the, like, headaches and that were looked as, like, basically what caused her death. But what's weird is the fact that Michael and his first wife had gone over for dinner. The husband of Elizabeth is dead by this point. So it's Elizabeth being a single mom. So Michael apparently stays behind to help put these children to bed. And then he claims he leaves after they go to bed. It's not till the next morning when the nanny comes to help Elizabeth. That she finds that Elizabeth is dead. Um, So, yeah. Like, it's just, it's very odd. And it's very just peculiar. Peculiar. If I can speak. Peculiar. Yes. That, you know, he just happens to be the last one to see Elizabeth alive. And then here we are, years later. You're 
actual wife supposedly falls down a flight of steps and dies. I'm not buying it. I'm suspicious AF. <laughs> yes. So, before the trial, the Durham court ordered the exhumation of Elizabeth's embalmed body, which was buried in Texas. So, I'm guessing she must have married, like, a U.S. man. It was never specified. And they wanted a second autopsy performed in April 2003. Arrangements were made for the same medical examiner for Kathleen to perform the second autopsy. The defense argued that the Texas medical examiner should perform the autopsy instead. Which, I mean, I kind of get because if if you've done an autopsy on a victim and then you're trying to find something, you might be a little biased. You might only be looking for stuff that's going to support... Right. What you're looking for. But the medical examiner that looked at Kathleen is the same one that looked over Elizabeth's remains. So the the Durham ME found sufficient evidence drawn from the second autopsy. New witness statements were also found describing the scene. These new findings changed the cause of death from accidental to homicide. The prosecution didn't accuse Michael of Elizabeth's death, but said that it gave him ideas of how to fake Kathleen's death. You're guilty, but you're not guilty. But you're guilty. (laughs) You're guilty of the crime that we're not charging you for, but you're not guilty of the crime that you're being charged for. And that's yeah, it's one like, of the many problems with our justice system. Pretty much. So the nanny and another witness from the case testified in court and went against police reports and said there was very that said that so the police report said there was very little blood, but the nanny and this other witness said that the scene was basically covered in blood. The other witness, besides the nanny, said that they spent most of the day cleaning up bloodstains. The evidence would later go on to be one of the grounds of appeal against this conviction in 2005. In October 2002, acting as administrator of Kathleen's estate, Caitlin filed a wrongful death claim for $25 million, and it was finalized by the court in, on February 1st of 2008. So, whether that was, like, smart, like, that was either smart on her part or, I don't know. It's just, it's very odd to me, almost, that she'd be like, I'm going to go after you for all this money. Yeah. It's just very strange. So, on October 10th, 2003, following one of the longest trials in North Carolina history, Michael Peterson was found guilty of the murder of Kathleen. He was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. 
Now, the denial of parole would mean premeditation. But the jury basically said they accepted the murder was spur of the moment, but also it was premeditated. Which, to me, is just, like, what? <laughs> it happened suddenly, but, like, you know, I thought about it. It's just very strange. He was jailed at Nash Correctional Institution near Rocky Mount. Michael's first attempt at appeal was denied, and finally on November 12, 2008, a new appeal was filed on the grounds of prosecution, which withheld ex exculpatory evidence. It basically withheld evidence about the blow poke, which for them was their murder weapon. Everything. So the prosecution also used an expert witness, which their qualifications were disputed. And finally, one juror based on based his judgment on radical factors. Not radical, racial factors. Which to me is very strange because, so I'm guessing that juror was black because it's a white man and a white woman. So, I don't, that's the only thing I can think of as far as <laughs> racial factors would go. Yeah. On March 10th, 2009, the motion was denied. In late 2009, a new theory gained some traction. So the swearing each upon your tinfoil hat, Sloan. All right, I'm here. So this theory is known as the owl theory. It was said that Kathleen had been attacked by a barred owl outside. She had fallen after rushing inside and knocked herself unconscious after hitting her head on the stairs. So the reason this gain traction was because attorney T. Lawrence Pollard, who was a neighbor of the Pat of the Petersons and wasn't involved in the case other than just being a neighbor. Yeah, being a neighbor and following like what was public detail. During like the recovery of evidence and that the like in the report it was listed that there was a feather found. And it was a microscopic owl feather and a small sliver of a tree limb that was found in a clump of hair that was pulled out from the roots and found in Kathleen's hand. <sighs> so, so what they're trying to say is that a owl attacked her. She ran in. The, the owl was still attacking her. She fell and slipped. Her head knocked herself unconscious. So most of the times, whenever animals are in a distressed situation like that, they cannot... I mean, they're, it's a little bit more difficult for them to find their way out. So, I feel like if an owl was what attacked her and she ran inside while it was still attacking her, 
somebody inside the house would have seen an owl flying around. Yeah. So they're trying to say that this owl attacked her. She fell, hair like hair head knocked herself unconscious unconscious. Some of the lacerations came from said owl. It also came from her waking up, slipping on some blood, and falling and hitting her head again. I'm not buying it. Yeah, it's, personally. It's a little odd. The defensive team never kind of ran with this, but it was kind of, it gained traction a little bit when people were looking into it because of the fact that there was a feather listed among things found. And then they look into it and they see that even like a little sliver of like tree bark and that was listed, which is very odd, but also. But also like how much stuff is inside my house exactly. because the dogs truck it in there. Like there's so many, like you have not to look to at mention so many what factors. Nate and I, not to mention what Nate and I drag in from our works. Yeah. So, in August 2010, a new motion was filed following newspaper articles bringing SBI analysis Dwayne Dever into question. He was one of the principal witnesses against Michael. In January 2011, Dever would go on to be fired after an audit found he had falsely represented evidence in 34 cases. So, Peterson in on September 14, 2011 was granted a new trial by jury due to Devers being found suspect. On December 16, 2011, Peterson was released from Durham County Jail on $300,000 bail and placed under under house arrest with a tracking anklet. On February 24, 2017, Peterson extend, not extended, sorry, entered an Alfred plea, which is basically a guilty plea, entered because sufficient evidence exists to convict him of the offense, but he also asserts himself like innocent. So, the Alfred plea deal was basically to convict him of voluntary manslaughter for Kathleen. The judge sentenced him to a maximum of 86 months in prison with credit for time served, which Peterson at this time had served 98.5 months, so he faced no additional jail time. If you watch... The documentary in the last episode, you get to hear Kathleen's sisters kind of say their little piece in that. And Candace goes off. She goes the fuck. She sounds crazy. Like, the way she talks, like, I get where she's coming from. Like, this is your sister. Like, you're going to be over emotional. But she comes off a little crazy in that. And, like, even... um. Michael's daughter later goes, Candace is fucking crazy. And it's like, yeah, she came off that way. If she would have, like, let someone that wasn't as involved read her, like, little notes she read from, maybe, 
maybe she would have sound sounded more credible. Right. But yeah. It's just it was very like you're sitting there going, ooh. So like I said before, I highly suggest you watch this documentary because there's more detail details given than any news article you're gonna find because news article we have so many words half the time they have to cut out certain details. You're getting like a first hand ex- like look into this stuff, so you're seeing stuff that like I said, you're not seeing in news articles. You also get to kind of see the 911 like recording and that. Like I said, I think they kind of splice it together because it said that, like, there was a cutoff and what, but, like, in the 911 that you see on this documentary, there's no cutoff. Um, and you also get to see some video footage of the trial and the retrial, which is where I said you get to see, like, Candace losing her shit. <laughs> Um, but I was telling Sloan about this. The thing that I think bothered me the most about how this, like, series ended and what happened in the very last episode is that Michael, like, he has a conversation with his daughter Margaret, which I believe is actually Elizabeth's daughter that he adopted or took, like, guardianship of. And, like... They're kind of talking back and forth. She was like, man, Margaret's fucking crazy. Not Margaret. Candace is crazy in that. And then they're like, at least like this is solved. We won't have to talk about, you know, jail time or like anything like that anymore. And he was like, until somebody else fucks up. What do you mean by that? (laughs) (laughs) And then he goes on and like it like cuts and whatnot, and it comes back, and it's like, he goes, you want to hear my favorite song? And he gets Alexa to play Leonard Cohen's Everybody Knows, which if you don't know the song, like I said, it'll play it. It'll play at least a part of it in that documentary, but if you listen to it, it's very, like, eerie, and, like, you can sit there and listen to the lyrics and go, I mean, I get it. You're probably saying this is your favorite song because... You can relate it to, like, what you went through, but also it's, like, are you saying this is your favorite song because you got away with killing your, like, second wife? Like, it's just so weird. And that's just kind of how things end. There's not too much information about, like, what's going on nowadays. It's just kind of like, all right, this ended. Trying to live a normal life, which I understand, but also it's, like, But what happened? <laughs> so that's where I bring you all in. I want to know what you think. What you think? Like, do you think he killed his wife, or do you think he's innocent? There, I've seen TikToks because this has been brought up on TikTok ever since the uh, Hulu series or thing came mm-hmm. out. People being like, "I don't think he killed his wife," and I'm like, "Really?" So, I'll have to go and watch the Hulu thing. But it's just, it's like, it's one, like I said, it's one of those things, like, I can get both sides, but also I'm like, I kind of feel like he killed his wife and got away with it. (laughs) That's the camp that I 
partake in as well personally but we want to hear what you think as well so hit us up on our socials or email tequila she wrote tequila she wrote at gmail.com let us know what you think about this case mm-hmm. with that being said i guess we'll kick it off to the last call welcome back to another last call with sloan today i am going to tell you about the one surgery in history that had a 300 percent mortality rate so if you don't know what a mortality rate is it means the amount of people that have survived from said surgery so the fact that there is a 300 percent mortality rate <laughs> on this one surgery it means like no one's ever survived it means that one person was operated on and it, sh- that person died and an additional two people died from this one particular surgery. So today's story is, oh my goodness, my phone, always yeah. doing this stuff, always doing this to us. Today is the story of Dr. Robert Liston. And this is from like the very old days, like early 1900s, late 1800s. I found this story through TikTok. So I'm going to tell you from the TikTok perspective that I heard. So I don't have exact dates or anything. I do have names though. So we have Dr. Robert Liston. And these were the days before we had anesthesia. anesthesia. So whenever doctors perform surgeries, they had to get it done really quickly because their patients felt all of the pain from the surgery. So with this one particular surgery, He started, and I want to say it was an amputation of a leg, and it's also a, like, kind of funny side note, now that we can look back and be like, huh, glad we don't do that anymore, but at this point, people could come in and watch the surgeries just as spectators, and I know from Grey's Anatomy that, like, you know, the medical interns can go in and watch the surgeries to learn, Yeah. but this, in this instance, it was literally like you and I could go in and be like, hey, there's no good movies downtown playing today, so we wanted to watch this instead. Here's $10. So he looked up at the galley and he said, tie me before he starts the surgery. So he starts, like I said, I'm pretty sure this was an amputation of the leg. So he starts his surgery and during his surgery, he cuts off like three of the fingers of his uh, assistant who's helping him with the surgery. So both the patient and the assistant contract a deadly virus and die within a few days of the surgery. So that's two of the three people that have passed away from this. The third person that passed away from this was a spectator. And whenever they like chopped off whatever and blood slung everywhere, the man freaked out because there was blood on his coattails and he had an anxiety attack slash heart attack and he passed away on the spot. So that is how this one surgery on one person had a 300% mortality rate. A fun quick story. Like I said, it was from TikTok. So it was like a little 90 second TikTok. Nothing big, nothing grand. Just a, uh, I don't know. I had never heard of a 
because most of the time whenever you hear mortality rates you hear of it like in general like with appendectomies it is a pretty low percentage 10% or less I would want to wager and so going from an everyday surgery to this 300% (laughs) mortality rate I heard that and I was like wait what yeah wait what the surgery killed how many people and one was the actual person in surgery the second one was the surgery assistant and the third was a spectator who actually passed away before anybody else in the room so that is my fun story for today fun-ish story interesting fact whatever you want to call that i hope you enjoyed it i hope you enjoyed today's case if you did let us know you can rate review subscribe all those things wherever you're listening right now uh tequila she wrote across the board for our social medias as well as any listening places that you want to listen apple spotify all those things but tequila she wrote for twitter instagram tiktok facebook you can also email us at tequila she wrote at gmail.com with any case suggestions, cocktail recipes, yeah, any discussions you want to have, hit us up there. We also have our Patreon set up, which gives you ad-free episodes for as little as $2 a month. We also have some bonus episodes. I'm still catching up on those, but we do have some up. And you get merchandise and if you pay a little more than two dollars you get like i said you get these different bonus episodes and stuff like that but yeah that's all we have for you today until next time keep fighting the patriarchy keep sipping your tequila stay strong bitches and we'll catch you on friday bye bye